Hello and welcome to the Chicana Code Switchers podcast. Your co-hosts are Ariana and Patricia. We are both Chicana scholar practitioners in higher education. Each episode, we discuss insights, tips, and resources for students and practitioners in higher education with a focus on social justice and platicas. With that being said, let's start this episode. Hi, everybody. I'm so excited that we are recording for another episode. Um, so, Ariana, tell us what, what was the latest thing you have going on since our last check-in? I have been able to negotiate for more money at UC Riverside. I feel like last time we talked, I talked about, you know, getting accepted, right? But I also want to share that, you know, those financial award letters are negotiable, And the institution does have money, uh, not a lot, especially depending on the program you're in. Um, but the cool, the cool part was that I, you know, told them that I'm undocumented, a woman of color, first gen. I just got out of grad school, so I don't have a lot of savings. Um, and if they were willing to provide me with additional funding, what should it, you know, I'm, I was willing to work for it. I was willing to apply for other additional fellowships. And they um, responded that they would check. And I thought, you know, that was just a standard response. Like, oh, yeah, I'll check and see you. And, but they did, which was pretty cool. And apparently the dean at the School of Education um, granted me an additional year of funding. But I would have to work as a TA, which is fine. They would be waiving my tuition and fees and covering my um, health insurance, which is pretty expensive if you ask me. Um, so, um, so yeah, so that happened. Um, I just received the latest version of the award letter. I haven't responded, um, but I did thank them for sending that updated version. And, um, And I've been applying to scholarships, right? So HSF, Hispanic Scholarship Foundation, Chicana Latina Foundation. There's this other one. I'm forgetting, but um, there's about three or four scholarships that I'm working on, all due, of course, at the end of March. And work is fine. I've managed. <laughs> um, I had to do the award letters for three students, which was a very... Um, time consuming because it's the first time that I'm doing that. And also the numbers, right? I don't want to make a mistake and grant them more money than I'm supposed to. So it was a constant back and forth. I think it took me two weeks to get them done just because one, I was putting them off and two, when I really got down to it, I was like, crap, I need to really get this done. For uh, our listeners, could you explain to us what, what is this award letter that you're talking about? So So you know how I negotiated my financial award letter? I was working- And we're talking about the PhD financial award letter in terms yes. of funding for your program. Yes, so I'm working at UC Davis as a, an advisor slash coordinator for undergrads and grad students in the um, school, what is it? The bio Biological Systems Engineering Program or department. And I was, part of my job, I guess, includes me working on these financial word letters. And thankfully the person before me had worked on most of them. So it's like 14 students and I just worked on three. She had taken care of everything else. And um, 
I was working on the financial word letters that I, I was negotiating, for example, that I was negotiating at UC Riverside. And they require, you know, percentages, right? Like how much the department is providing them with funding and how much is their faculty providing them with funding for each summer, spring and fall. And also, um, you know, if they're international students, if they're coming in with a BA already, or if they already have a master's, or are they going straight into a PhD? So all of that matters. And um, so that was interesting. Chief's man, my advisor got got on my case because she's like, these award letters have been challenging for you, right? And I'm like, yeah, as expected, right? Because it's the first time I'm doing these, and I don't, and I'm leaning towards the cautious part of this than the just aventarme, then just, you know, not care and send it. Um, and yeah, so one of them, she did make a mistake. We worked on it together and she, we, we, I had a number and she said that was too much. And then we worked on it together. The number we got together was um, wrong. And so she sent me a separate email apologizing for, you know, misguiding me for, you know, for getting on my case that the number was wrong. Um, and I acknowledged, you know, her email. I said, no worries. We're learning the process together, right? And also, thank you for acknowledging the mistake because it can happen to any of us, right? It can happen to me and I would be apologizing or it could happen, you know, I appreciated her acknowledging that she realized that she was wrong. Y que, you know, she took ownership. So, yeah, so outside of work, you know, continuing to, um, enjoy this little freedom that I have before I have to start my program and um, balancing, you know, learning to balance work and work in life, work in, yeah, life. Yeah. And just for people um, in context, especially when it comes to um, universities that have PhD programs and master's programs, the behind the scenes can be very messy process in terms of being able to coordinate with so many different people um, because there's so many key elements. There's the financial aid piece, there's the admissions piece, there's the professor faculty who are the ones, you know, making the call of who they want to accept and or who they want to recommend uh, for the program. Um, and then there's the staff behind the scenes too, putting all of these things together to make sure that the, the students are not only getting orientation, they're getting advising, they are getting their answers or their questions answered. And for the most time, a lot of these programs may not have something established already, especially now that it's virtual. I'm pretty sure your office is going through a whole transition in terms of how they're handling a lot of these cases. And in terms of your experience um, within the past academic year, especially this application cycle, seems like not only are universities working with less funding, but also it seems like there is less um, students and more applicants, less positions for the spots that they have to admit for students for this application cycle at all levels. Yeah, so that's why, um, well, for example, when I, was a, when I was requesting additional funding, I knew that the funding that they could provide would be limited, right? Because we are going through a pandemic, there's a shortage of students, you know, there's a lot of students who defer so they are low on their budgets. And also when I, was, when I was emailing the coordinator at that school, I was like totally understanding, right? 
because I was going through it. So I was like, I understand you might be really busy right now, but I was wondering, um, you know, when you will have, when you'll be able to send me an updated version of my award letter, right? Because I know what it's like, especially now, you know, negotiating, now navigating this space and creating these award letters for, like you said, for the faculty who are granting them, granting the students funding. And this funding sometimes comes from like different pools of funding mm -hmm. buckets. And so in terms of the behind the scenes, it gets labeled at different uh, funding numbers and sources of funding. They have like different codes. So mm -hmm. I think even like the way that it's organized is super um, complicated and it leads to often huge delays in terms of what happens. And unfortunately for a lot of students, they don't get a, an answer right away. And oftentimes why so much, so many of us are complaining about reimbursements of anything, because again, all this money is moving in and out. And unfortunately it's not because of the way that a system works is that very few people are specialized in one part of the whole streamline of the process. So if one gets delayed, everything else gets delayed. And there really isn't much of an incentive to really you know, upgrade any of these or make it more efficient as possible for anybody working in this process. Y menos si te están este preguntando, like, even faculty and some staff don't even know the process either. They just kind of trying to call the shots and make these things when realistically sometimes it's not even the capacity uh, to get funding for certain students or they don't realize that they don't have capacity to admit, you know, X number of students that they wish they had. Yeah, yeah. And there's a whole like, you know, behind the scenes, like you said, Patti, that the, there, at least my department doesn't have a process. They don't have, <laughs> they don't have structure in place. So they're just like literally winging it, which, you know, when I, when I have my meetings with my supervisor, I'm like, if I were a student applying to this program and I asked, when am I going to get my, notice as to whether or not I was uh, admitted and it's like the end of March I wouldn't want to go to this school and this and do this program so this is just like this has been like an eye-opening experience about what goes on and who is ready and and it it says a lot about the program I think just based on what I've been witnessing but it also tells a lot of it of how you know it gives you a glimpse of just like when you first get admitted, like, right, like when you first, this is your first impression with this department in terms of how they're handling things. And this is how they're handling it. You can also gauge and try to see, is it really worth it to go to this program? See if this is the way that it's going to be. And this is just the entrance. Like they don't even have it. Like at this point, they're trying to get you to come to their program, not the other way around. And you know, the importance of negotiating and making sure that you are having some options for yourself as a student, because, you know, the student usually is the last thing in their mind for a lot of these programs in terms of their own process. Mm -hmm. yeah, 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 definitely. So just things to consider when you are all, you know, looking at your options and acceptances or lack thereof, right? Yeah, and knowing like who to, who you can talk to in the process, right? Who can advocate for you to expedite your process or to answer any questions you may have where certain things aren't making sense just because even like, you know, in any step of the way, if 
you can easily overlook a small detail that can really make a big impact for you. Yeah. And this whole time I've been talking to different people. I'm like, this is what I heard back from, you know, based on this question or like my negotiation, can you take a look at it? Because they pick up on things that I don't know I should be asking about. Right. So definitely lean on your resources. But with that said, Patti, what are some of your updates? So from our last check-in, I had mentioned that I had adopted my dog. So we have been doing private training lessons, making sure that um, my dog knows how to walk on a leash um, and figuring out like just now it's almost been close to getting to three months. So now there's a difference in terms of, you know, the bonding relationship and establishing a routine. And so that has really helped me. Um, go outside and definitely at least twice a day. Uh, this dog is like goes four times outside for a walk a day uh, to go to the bathroom and to walk is again, her um, breed is um, heavily like you need to be highly active. So, and it, which works out for all of us because that's exactly what has been helpful, you know, definitely past the pandemic a lot quicker, just like being able to go on walks. I mean, I live next to a different campus where I live currently. And so it's been helpful to do like long walks, try to, you know, get some uh, sun and some fresh air because it's pretty, se te pasa todo el día adentro en la casa, like on a computer. So it's really nice to just be able to go outside. Um, I have noticed that for me personally, like even when I was a student in the fall, um, I was really good at managing my work, but emotionally I feel so much better in the spring because it's like sunny and there's a lot of things going on. We're getting closer to summer. Um, and also it's been a year since the, you know, the lockdown has happened for this month. So after a whole year of being virtual in home, it's just been interesting to see also the departments and how they're going to, again, still manage and still, and they don't have a lot of um, structured or clear directions on how they're opening this fall, pero casi todos ya están in the same boat of like things have to open in fall, um, which again, having discussions with other um, PhD students and faculty out of state, you know, they're all saying like, because of neoliberalism, of course, they're going to want to justify opening up, even though it might not be safe to do so. So definitely, like, you know, everyone try to know more of your rights or more of the ways that you can get accommodations if, you know, need be, because they're not definitely not thinking about the care or the need of, like, the students, especially now that Biden's administration is now really pushing towards um, getting more vaccines by May, um, which again, in certain counties, especially in Santa Clara County, in um, Southern, uh, the so South Bay area, um, already ran out of vaccines. So uh, there's there has been capping of how many and how many people can get the vaccines because Right now, they're at a shortage, while other counties, definitely, you see a huge increase of people getting vaccinated, mostly white people. Um, it's been interesting just because I grew up in Napa to see how Napa has been structuring and, uh, you know, vaccinating folks as opposed to other counties where it's been really hard to even have a vaccination site or even walk-ins as a possibility. There has been just like drive-ins or um, you have to do appointment only or 
um, I had to navigate different websites. Like even my colleague had mentioned like, hey, check out this Bay Area public health um, nonprofit where they're also offering vaccines because, you know, other hospitals or um, what is it called? Yeah, like hospitals aren't administering vaccines in the same way either. Like Kaiser's not doing the same thing as like other hospitals or other nonprofits may have more vaccines than others. And so unless you know or have access to people letting you know where you can access it, you won't be able to. And, and unfortunately for a lot of people with um, medical conditions have still not been vaccinated to the capacity. And even though they're phase one, they still haven't gotten their vaccine. So definitely huge challenges with um, just getting everybody, um, you know, being able to be safely next to people and the way that HR is handling, like, you know, a lot of universities are having town halls and in my campus so far, yet quieren todos presente, you know, like in person. Some students definitely don't want to. Um, a lot of students have been mentioning that they want to have a high, like have different modalities of being able to take classes uh, because they do like the flexibility and the options. Um, but like all things in terms of student feedback, they're usually the last ones to be heard because again, faculty um, and administrators are the ones who usually have more of a say in these kind of processes. So um, I just feel, I just got a sense that all these admin are waiting until the last minute to say something so people don't have enough time to organize and really think about letting out their voice in, in terms of how things are gonna take place. I mean, my campus pushed back the registration time for all students. So, quien um, sabe, like it's very, you know, again, kind of challenging to see like what the upcoming, you know, next academic year will be for sure. Um, and now I'm kind of planning to also like move to closer to uh, my campus, um, trying to see what will happen too, because of just working at a city university or a university that's in a city is a lot different than, you know, universities where they, it's a, it's like a town like UC Davis, like UC Davis is kind of like a, a university town, definitely. Um, so trying to get to campus and my campus is again in a downtown city of San Jose, <laughs> And very hard to like find parking, you know, just like any other city, but they're trying to change a lot of the things, but no los veo con prisa. Y eso es que like right now, this would be the time to, you know, make construction, make changes in the office to make it, you know, better. But the fact that the CDC is moving from six feet to three feet in the classrooms is just, you know, being able to justify why they should be able to go in person yeah it's um it's crazy because um even when I you know ask UC Riverside about in-person classes and if I can stay remote they're like oh we just got this statement from the chancellor and he um is stating that by fall we'll have 70 percent of students back on campus and I'm like what does that mean what happens to the rest of the 30 percent you know who can't or are not able to return to on campus. Um, so that definitely, you know, like you're, to your point, it's like they're waiting till the very last minute to, so that they can get their monies and then you are stuck, you know, possibly. No puedes hacer nada by that. 
Yeah. And, you know, their justification is also like, we are a university that's all about in-person experience and connections. And really, like, you know, for, for some things, sure, you can do in person and, and, you know, you can't replace that interactions. But for other things, I don't think there really needs to be an in-person experience. Like for a lot of the students, um, even the university president was thinking about, you know, we really need to change how GEs and, and those like um, university requirements function. And also each department should really think about how the degree requirements function. And, and is it really, are there students even really learning anything? I mean, in my work right now, we're doing a grad checks, meaning we're meeting with students who are eligible to apply to graduate as undergraduate students, um, but haven't done so. And just explaining and letting them know like, hey, here's the requirements that you need to finish in order to finish. Let's set up an ed plan so we can know like from here until the time that you graduate, what would that look like each term? How many semester units would you need? Um, trying to like both be realistic of what they have and also what they want to do. Uh, a lot of them don't really know how many requirements they have left. A lot of them still haven't done a lot of career preparation or any career development. They didn't even know that we had a career center. So there's just so many gaps in terms of, you know, the realist, the, the, este, la realidad, like the, um, the reality that a lot of these students have to go through. And many don't have the skills enough to do job interviews and job searching and just the basic foundations, you know, of like what really, what's the practicality of the degree that you're getting? Because sure, you're doing all these essays, but really what is it that you're gaining from? Like, what are you working towards? is really hard because all they've been focusing on is just filling this arbitrary requirements that you don't really know where it's leading you to. And it's not guaranteed that again, your, your, your degree is going to get you anything better than if you would have just worked your way up the chain in your job um, or even through work experience, right? They claim that uh, students need more, we need a more educated workforce, but really they don't, you know, spend the time to prepare these, these students to understand you need to, once you hit that third, fourth, or, you know, you're getting closer to that graduation stage, how much are you preparing for post-graduation plans? Um, I still get seniors and juniors that are right now asking, oh, I think I need to go to grad school, but I don't know anything about that. And my job keeps telling me, well, we already have a career center. We already have faculty that talk about this. We have a graduate study or graduate department who can talk to them about grads, grads, graduate school or even career prep. But I'm like, but then why do I keep getting students asking me these questions? Then, you know, in terms of, you know, our center definitely should have someone who can start the conversation or be prepared to and then refer them to the career center. But if a career center, like many other student affairs programs, are not updated to be holistic in the circumstances and, and adapt to a lot of minority students' experiences, then really everything is outdated um, from the way that we work, from the way that we interact with students, the kind of expectations we have. I'm just sitting here like, you know, who's doing that work for them? If we, you know, were better upgraded and being able to interact with students and lead them to the graduate process, many students or even faculty and staff don't see the importance of minors 
or catering to like how do we service or or just you know allow students who are minored in a different college have a voice in that college. Um, many students don't even know who the dean is. You know, um, I'm reviewing one dean. It's been a very interesting process in terms of how performative these reviews are and how often. Um, students don't know how colleges work and function and how they can lend themselves to get a voice. And it's, again, from even previous um, guests that we had when we talked about student government, I mean, a lot of these positions, they claim to not have the, like, that's not their responsibility or that's not their job title. Pero siempre cuando es like algo que someone's getting in trouble, apparently somehow it is their job to like, somehow they'd like pop up, you know, and then they're like, you're not allowed to do this. But it's interesting how much admin don't claim that that is their role. And then you're here sitting like, if you actually evaluate the whole picture, then you're like looking at, then who is, whose responsibility is this then? If it keeps getting pushed down to just the students responsible for their own selves, yet you're not providing a platform for them to understand really how to navigate their college experience. It's exhausting just sitting here and you, you know, you kind of have to sit down as a staff and you're like, you know what, let me pick my battles or at least for this student, let me try to get them, you know, to be aware of how this works. But it's unfortunate. I wish a lot more um, transition or orientation programs actually educated students in terms of their rights and just how that functions so they understand how they can protect themselves. Definitely. There's so much, like, um, especially for first-gen students that they don't know, right? Navegar certain situations, circumstances. and But I don't think yeah. the institution wants them to know. So it's to their No, because después luego, you know, you would have to do something about it. And so... It's just such a frustrating process whenever I meet like with a first-gen student, not the student itself, but it's like the circumstances that they had been pushed to. And then once you meet with them, it's like super late and you're just like, well, you you had to learn like all these different stuff before you get to this part. And then now I'm like telling you, hey, have you done career prep? You know, like, And then they're like, oh, I thought that I just had to do classes. It's a tough, you know, position to put yourself in. And much less letting them know that now because they're heading to the junior senior phase, a lot of their peers that have the privilege to have been mentored into the grad school process, then they feel pressured to do grad school because that's what everybody in that stage is now thinking. Um, a lot more, you know, around their classes, people are like, it's kind of like, they viene de repente, everybody just starts talking and you're just kind of left out like without the conversation. Everybody has been planning it uh, like by themselves, but then by the time that you get to your upper division courses, not everybody's talking about it. And the expectation is just brought up like, hey, you should have done this. And so that's what I've just noticed a lot is that in my reflection of like how student leaders are different, because now I'm being in contact with more of the student leaders in my campus. They get one-on-one mentorship and the expectation and the access of this information about going to grad school and all the other students don't get pushed or encouraged to do the same, like, or even just being aware of it. Like, you know, you don't have to go to grad school, but you just at least have the option to choose whether that's a path for you or not. And so much, and then if you do decide to go to grad school, you feel pressured from so many different people of having to do it in a specific way. Like if you're working in student affairs, you have to go do a master's in student affairs then, you know? Without realizing that, you know, your path 
may lead you to some other things, even if you did work in student affairs, you don't have to stay there. Um, so it's just been interesting just seeing how like mentorship is now, you know, taking place virtually um, as we're still like a whole year in virtual world. Yeah. Okay, let's transition into introducing our new guest for this week. We have Diana Ortiz Giron. Um, her pronouns are she, her, and yeah. Um, and she is the Assistant Director for Diversity Education and Support at Harvard College. Um, as the Assistant Director for the Harvard Foundation for Intercultural and Race Relation, Diana oversees the Diversity Peer Educator Program, a group of 20 trained student interns who plan and facilitate inclusive programming at Harvard College. In her role, she also provides support to undocumented and DACA students and was the former director of uh, FIRE program, a pre-orientation program dedicated to welcoming first-generation, low-income, and underrepresented first-year students. Diana earned a Bachelor's of Arts in History with a minor in Latina Latino Studies at Pomona College and a Master's of Divinity from Harvard Divinity School. She is an alum of the Harvard University Administrative Fellows Program and the Green Lining Institute Leadership Academy, the Chicano Latino Youth Leadership Project, and is currently in the Latinos for Education Aspiring Latino Leaders Fellowship. She was originally born in Mexico and raised in the San Gabriel Valley of the greater Los Angeles uh, area. So welcome, uh, Diana, to our podcast. And just wanted to, um, you know, if you could tell us, Ariana and Diana, like how you both met. Yeah, um, Diana, thank you so much for joining us. Yes, uh, we met at Harvard uh, when I started my master's program there. And we have a mutual friend who um, we both know and and, we share that in common. We're both from California, right? From an immigrant background and maneuvering Harvard as first generation students is something that we also hold in common. And I think uh, just our immigrant immigrant related work, we met, I believe through Allies, and we were just meant to meet. Diana, <laughs> um, anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, thank you both for having me in your podcast. Um, Really appreciate all the amazing work you both are doing as uh, Chicana Latinas. Ariana and I um, were meant to meet, I think, as, as any immigrant student leader who just kind of steps into the world of activism in the, all the institutions that we encounter. So I think um, we were both very involved in the immigrant undocu community. And I think as as Latinas and our ba shared background and experiences, and also both being interested in higher education as a career, that also has been a great experience in getting to know her. So thank you both for having me here. Yeah, and it's been kind of difficult, you know, whenever you're, you know, as first generation college students, just like knowing how to navigate college, but also really finding this like very niche, very small, like interest group of Latinas who are specifically interested in, you know, activism, femtorship, um, and also being higher ed professionals. There's just like the, the, the numbers of people like grow smaller and smaller as uh, especially if you keep moving up and getting your master's or, you know, aspiring to do PhD work, any of that stuff. So, um, Ariana, tell us, you know, what our main topic will be. Yeah, so with that, um, you all might recall that we had Diana as one of our participants in the um, Harvard Graduate School of Education's Alumni of Color Conference back in March. 
And so this is just an extension of that interview or that, that event, that workshop that we provided back then. And so um, for those of you who didn't hear that uh, episode, I encourage you to look back at it. Uh, it was a great conversation. Um, but, you know, with regards to today, we would like to ask um, Vianna to share more about her educational journey, how you ended up studying at Harvard and then working thereafter. Like, what was your, what did your journey look like? Because, you know, it's not many of us that end up in these Ivy League places. Absolutely. Um, I was born in Mexico, raised in San Gabriel Valley in the area of Los Angeles. And um, I went to public school, graduated from Monrovia High School. Um, and I was privileged enough to have an older brother who sort of paved the way for me to go to college. He went off to UCLA and um, during his first year, he got heavily involved with ideas at UCLA, started doing activism, even flew to Washington DC to do um, Dream Act. Dream Act activism at that time. And so I felt like as soon as you got to college, you automatically became an activist because I saw my brother sort of being politicized, being empowered and sort of on that journey that I was very excited to, to go to college. Um, my brother and I both sort of talked about options for us. We were both undocumented at that time. There was no California Dream Act. There was no uh, DACA and um, our options were slim, right? And so we were our whole goal was to go to a private school and get a full scholarship. That's what a lot of um, undocumented students um, aspire to do. And my brother at that time had to take on multiple jobs to kind of help with my mom with income. I did have to take on tutoring jobs, but I think he took the brunt of it and um, his grades went down. And I think him sacrificing for our family allowed me to stay focused on my education and to learn from his mistakes um, that by the time that I had graduated, um, my grades were really strong. I was heavily involved in um, high school leadership, extracurriculars, sort of holistic student. And I was, um, I applied to 10 privates and I got into one private school called Pomona College in Claremont, California, a small private elite liberal arts school that gave me a full scholarship with room and board, dining services, sort of the whole package that a lot of our first-gen low-income students strive for, specifically our undocu students who don't qualify for federal aid. So this was a dream come true. And for me, it was a huge responsibility that my brother didn't have. He didn't have any of the um, package, scholarship package that I had. He had to pay, pay his way through UCLA, um, you know, stop a semester, work, you know, save up money, do it all over, um, commute through hours from Duarte to UCLA on a bus. There, the LA public trans is a very outdated system. So you can imagine the, the, the stark differences between my brother's experience in university, public university, and my own experience in private elite universities. So I owe a lot of my educational journey to him because um, his sacrifices allowed me to fulfill our dreams. And so after, gradu after graduating Pomona, uh, the, the narrative was go to school until immigration reform passes. That's what a lot of us undocumented students um, were trying to do. And at that time, uh, DACA had just come out. And so a lot of grad, grad schools will eventually become more inclusive to DACA students, but that was too early for sort of admissions officers to know how to treat us. Um, so I 
was sort of on a journey to figure out what graduate program would fit me best. And I was looking at ed schools, I was looking at business schools, looking at nonprofit leadership management because I thought I was gonna be an executive director of a nonprofit. And uh, at the end, one of my uh, mentors from Pitzer College, uh, someone who was a year older, Albert Maldonado, um, who's now a lawyer and a part of the Alumni Association, we both serve on the board for HLLA, the Harvard Latino Alumni Association. Um, he told me there is a diversity exploration program happening at Harvard Divinity School for diverse students of all backgrounds who wanted to study religious studies. Um, I was a history major. I was always interested in religion. I'm a religious practitioner myself. And so faith and spirituality is a part of who I am. And I was particularly interested in social justice and, and religion. And how do you make change, right? We think about the civil rights movement, uh, Martin Luther King's leadership with the black church and being involved. We also think about liberation theology in Latin America, or even going back to the conquest and Catholicism was a part of colonialism. So I was heavily interested intellectually and culturally in religion. Um, but I didn't know that how to make that a career and how do I tell my mom, my, my brother, <laughs> that I want to study religion, that there's, that's not a practical pathway, right? But what I learned is I went to this program, Diversity Exploration, and I asked first, do you admit undocumented students? And then second, do you provide financial aid? And both answers were yes. So I redrafted my last senior year to try to make my way to Harvard Divinity School because it would give me three additional years of grad school for me to figure out what I wanted to do and figure out how to move forward in my in my career as an undocumented person at that time with DACA. So there's in my story and in my educational journey, there's um, tremendous privilege being someone who is a product of private schools. Um, there's also tremendous differences between those who I went to school with, right? So we we navigate this world where we we come from a place of um, humility. And when we come to these private wealthy institutions, we realize sort of our different backgrounds. And so at Harvard, um, I really enjoyed my time. I took classes at Harvard Law. I took classes at Harvard Ed School to figure out which path I wanted to take, decided um, education was gonna be my path, but I'm very grateful. And I'm here now working as an administrator. I'm happy to talk about that more when, when you need me to. Awesome, thank you for, for sharing all of the details in your journey because I think that's you know usually when I work with students or you know talk to prospective students specifically they want to know like how did you know what made you apply you know what what was that uh, point in time that you said that you thought of you know putting yourself out there right because it's a it's a something that we're, at least I want to say personally, I'm not used to doing, you know, I hesitate, I think about it, overthink about it. Um, but now that you, that you've graduated from Harvard and you've, you've, you're like one of the people that I know has been there the longest and someone that is very well connected and very involved and always going above and beyond to serve the students. And that's some equality that I, I admire, but let us know um, what is it like to work in student affairs and as an assistant director within diversity and inclusion and, and the work that you do. Absolutely. And back at you, Ariana, I think you're a very student-centered professional yourself and you're so committed to your, your craft and your practice. Um, and I haven't met Patricia as much, but I'm, I'm confident that she is as well, as we all are, right? If we're doing this work, if we're trying to increase awareness, we're all um, paving the way for others. We're all um, leaders. And so my journey as a student affairs practitioner at Harvard starts um, when I graduate 
Harvard Divinity School with my Master of Divinity. And at that time, I didn't realize how hard it was to break into an industry. I didn't realize how hard it was to find a job as a professional. You know, I, we grew up with our parents. If you were low income, immigrant parents who go from job to job, maybe they got laid off because they're seasonal workers. In a week or two, they're already at their next job and at doing the next hustle and the next gig. And so I was like, well, if I have a bachelor's and a master's, uh, how long could it take me to find a job? Like it's going to be a day, right? Like if my mom can find it in a month, maybe I'll find it in two weeks. And that was completely different. I no one told no one tells you um, they just say, go to college, go to college, go to grad school. They don't tell you the aftermath or the challenges that you'll experience once you have the degree. And even ourselves, we don't network until we graduate. We should be networking while we're getting our degree so that when we graduate, we already have a, a job lined up. But no one tells us these things. And so when I graduated, um, I had no idea what I was doing, applying to college access jobs, applying to nonprofit jobs. I was also applying to higher education. But again, this is a foreign field to me. I didn't understand how it worked. And um, I was very grateful to be um, mentored by a woman of color who works at the Office of Career Services. Her name is Linda Spencer, um, through the wonderful leadership of Robin Mount, who both are, who are currently there. And this is why mentors really matter and people who are willing to sponsor you. So they took me on as a part-time worker for the summer that after I graduated um, my degree. And that summer I was doing special projects for them where I was looking at creating resource guides for undocu students, for first-gen students, for internationals, really just creating a bunch of resources for their career service office, but while being mentored on how to find a job and how to interview and how to do all the things that I needed. And so my supervisor spent half the time um, you know, checking in about my work, but then half the other time doing social emotional career coaching that I needed. And it was a season that I was just a sponge. I just learned so much. Um, at that time, I had a, a, um, submitted an application sort of last minute to a program called the Administrative Fellows Program. And I sort of, you know, some, you know, you submit things, you wish things, and then you kind of move on to the next um, job application. And so I hadn't heard from them in a while, uh, but eventually I got an interview. I wasn't familiar with the office program. It was in academic affairs at that time. And um, I understood that th this was going to be a one-year fellowship. So even if I went through it, I would have to find a job right after. Um, and, you know, I went through the motions. I went through the interviews, had a lot of great coaching. I was also simultaneously going through a uh, round one and round two interview for a college access job in Los Angeles. Going back to LA was my dream right after um, graduating, Boston is a very hard place for Latinos to be, especially those of us who come from California, Texas, and Florida, where we're highly not a minority. And so um, going back to LA was the hope and the dream. I had already, my partner and I actually had both graduated from our master's, um, and we were struggling to find a job. We got rid of our furniture. We did not renew our lease. We bought our one-way ticket to LA. We were going to live in our parents' living room. We were going to go back to scratch, right? Ground zero. And there was a little sense of shame of how could we go back without a job? We just spent four, four years or three years trying to prepare ourselves for professional life, and we're going back without a job. But once, um, two weeks before our flight to LA, I finally got an offer from the Office of Gender Education at Harvard College through the Administrative Fellows Programs. I was their primary candidate. At that time, my career coach, Linda uh, and Femter, 
she told, taught me how to negotiate a salary, right? How to do all the things that you, you're supposed to do as a professional. Um, and, you know, I did that. I negotiated a, a, a work a month later to start my, my job because I still had this ticket to LA that I had to use. And so I talked to my partner and I said, well, nothing has come through for both of us. I think I should take this job. I don't know what academic affairs looks like. I thought I wanted to do student affairs, but nothing came out in that area. And so we, I took the job, I took the fellowship. I still went to LA for a month. We didn't have an apartment. And so when we came back, we stayed with people from our church who let us live in their guest room for two weeks before we found this studio apartment that we're in now. So it's been quite a journey to even get into student affairs. Once I went through this fellowship, this one year fellowship, um, incredible experience, loved all my fellows. There were people in my program, fellowship program, who were hired administrators of 25 years or more, who were in human resources, who were in um, um, consulting, all kinds of parts of the higher education. It's a huge industry. There's so many um, directions you can take. And I was the youngest one, and I was one of the only Latinas as well. And I was just soaking it up. It was a season of let me learn as much as possible um, because I need all the information that I can get to succeed. By the end of that year, my confidence level as a higher administrator um, just increased incrementally. I had a sense of what how to navigate higher ed as an administrator by learning from my fellows who had many, many more years of experience, still had my mentors to connect with back and forth. And when an assistant director job popped up in diversity and inclusion at the college, I did hesitate. And I think many of us hesitate to apply to jobs that we know we deserve. I hesitated because when I was in grad school, my third year, I was the graduate fellow in that same office. And I had seen the diversity program. Um, I had seen what type of work it requires to run that program. And I was now applying to the job that was going to be supervising 20 interns. I think the question for me was, could, do I have it within to do this work? Can I do in supervision? Will I succeed? Can I train them every week on diversity competency? Uh, this is a huge responsibility. I knew the predecessor, so the person who had that job. And I was like, she's amazing, amazing Latina. Um, I can never do what she does. And so I applied last minute. I think I have a history of last minute things that I do, but that are really incredible opportunities at the end. And I applied and I went through them again, the interview process um, and I was given the position. And now it was a matter of, do I take it and, and really take this leap of faith into student affairs or do I want to sit comfortably? Because in my uh, current position, although it was a one-year fellowship, they were willing to keep me for an additional year. And I think that's very common of us, right? Like we go to any job, we work hard, we show them the best. They want to keep us because we're incredible workers. And so um, I had to make a choice and I decided to pursue student affairs because it was going to be a more permanent position. And although I was still afraid of the job because of the workload, I was also very excited to work with students, to work in diversity and inclusion, because that's at the end, that's what I am passionate about. That's what I'm trained in. I naturally am social justice oriented. And so it kind of fit. Um, but being in student affairs now, it, I'm in my third year and it's the workload is completely different. Academic affairs, my job was nine to five. I had time for an hour lunch. I could go and network anytime throughout my, my schedule because you know there were uh, moments where I had more and less. In student affairs, I was working evenings, sometimes weekends, when I was planning my retreats with my students, really accommodating to their schedule. Um, the work is so taxing. 
but it is also so rewarding. I get to mentor now 20 um, interns. I get to um, coach students from all backgrounds and have the, the cultural competency to really just be there. I'm in the what I call, what we call the the grunt of our career. I'm in the in this season where it's just so much work, but I'm building something. I feel like I am. I've learned so much from these three years. I've been given the opportunity to you know, interact with the resident life system because of the race relations programs that I was, which is the resident tutors there. I've also been able to do pre-orientation work through the first gen program that I led, as well as now most recently undocumented student work. And so I really like, though I've been in um, diversity and inclusion only three years, but it feels like six years for the amount of work that, that Harvard has put on my plate or that I've taken on because I just um, really good at what I do and I really enjoy it and we're just we're just hard workers so really grateful but also really thinking about how sustainable would this be if I had a family if I had kids and I'm young right now right so I think it's like seasonal but I'm happy to be here as well yeah and I think when we're looking at like how to professionalize I think I like whenever things get overwhelming I have to remind myself I'm like I haven't been doing this work for so long and I haven't learned like we had to like sink and swim do as build as we go um, all this information all these things that we we didn't get to talk and discuss with our families or with our parents specifically just realize how much information we actually have to like learn and do because we have to catch up on especially applying for graduate school and the level of information you need to know in order to professionalize yourself after graduate school like making sure that your investment in either your undergrad or if you're applying to grad school it makes it worth um and especially when all those questions get super intimidating like how do you fit the field can you tell me like how well researched are you in understanding what the program is like everything little things that we have to learn to make sure that our application is holistic and that we represent our best self because we do have everything we you know everything with us to do a really good job in the program but it's so hard for us to explain how and then show and demonstrate how we are um and in that you know experience everything that you've been mentioning like you know the fears of first generation professionals and grad students undergrads like how hard it is to just like learn how to negotiate how to advocate for yourself how to you know make of something of your degree and have to explain to your family all these things and also thinking about how do you negotiate within your own family like how you mentioned how difficult it is to have a partner who is also trying to do professionally and mesh and learn how your both goals are going to match well if you're going to relocate because it's either one or the other uh, in terms of how you you know decide to apply to these positions like your partner and your family are also impacted in that decision so tell us how you've been you know, navigating these things for yourself and any advice or any information you can give, because I think that's the part where, especially if you've never learned about grad school, if you've never worked in higher ed positions, this is the part where I tell students, you know, here's this advice um, for you. What is it that you tell these students who have just been barely exposed to any of this um, info? Absolutely. I think there's so much, the learning curve is so high for us. Um, and I think it's when I found out that 80% of jobs are through networking, my my heart hurt. Like it literally felt like I don't have an uncle. I don't have a, a family member who can just hook me up with a job. And so for me, it was a, 
a really hard realization to learn the statistics around how to break into fields, how to get a job. Um, and since then, I've gotten a lot more comfortable with networking because one of my college mentors, Sergio Marin, who worked in the Draper Center at Pomona College, he told me once, you are a natural networker. You just don't know it. Um, we come from very social families, very social culture. We know how to saludar and say hello to everyone. We're just kind of trained to do the networking. We just feel like the, the word itself has been um, has a negative connotation for us. And for, for us, it's really about building connections and um, understanding that it takes a village to, to get anywhere in life and that it's okay if you need help. So I think absolutely when it comes to helping college students and graduate students learn how to go to the next step, because we're being trailblazers every step of the way and every step of the way has its new challenges depending on our identities and um, our, our family support system as well. But um, one thing I will say is when it comes to negotiating your salary, everyone, every employer expects you to negotiate your salary. It's part of uh, the professional world. It's part of the decorum. It's an expectation. You don't have to feel bad to ask for more money. Uh, if, if we Think about it. Um, there are your you would be leaving money in the in the table if you don't negotiate because it's kind of like you know any sale when you're selling a house you're gonna sell it for more money with the expectation that they're gonna want to pay less right and so that's what an employer is doing and so one of my mentors from the career service again I'm greatly um, so grateful for them told me the the ball is now on your court you now have the power to ask for more based on your qualification. And for me, it was like, but what qualifications? You know, I've this is my first job out of grad school. This is my first full-time job and it has benefits. Like for me, it was like, it's perfect. Like it's already more than what I would have asked for in the beginning. Um, but what she helped me understand was like, but you bring so many years of student leadership experience. When you get into higher education, all of those years of working with students, being student center, um, you bring years of ethnic studies that you bring to the conversation. So I think it's understanding um, that we do have a value. And although this was my first full-time job, um, there are ways where we work so much through college and grad school that we just learn so many skills and we learn how to do all kinds of things. So I, you know, I am what we call the milusos. I can do so many jobs because of the various experiences that I've had. I can do more with less and less with more. Whatever it is you need me to do, I can figure it out. Um, and then when it comes to translating your degree, not only do you have to translate it to your family, which is another issue, but you also have to translate it to the industry or the job. I have a, a liberal arts degree for my undergrad, uh, bachelor's in history, right? And a minor in ethnic Latino studies. And then I have a religious studies uh, master's degree. I think if you had asked anyone, it's like, what do you do with those things? And I also wondered, and I think there's this internal conflict of, am I even worthy of this job? Or do, do I need to have a master's of education to be in higher ed? Um, well, in speaking with folks who are alumni from my institution, I was able to find out that actually my, my degree is very translatable to um, the field of higher education, right? If we think about 
the um, pastoral skills or sort of um, ministry skills that I gained in terms of knowing how to be socially, emotionally competent when speaking with people, that's kind of like um, counseling and mentorship for students that can be translated. If we think about um, ministry that could be translated as service, my, my what we would call my population is students. Um, it's kind of what someone else would call their congregation. That's who they serve. Mine would be sort of in a secular institution. It would be the students that I serve, the people that I work with. And so really like I was able to um, be more comfortable wearing my degree. And that was something that I had to overcome mentally because other people saw me as competent, but I often would question, would they understand that I'm bringing different skills to the table? Another thing that I realized is within the world of diversity inclusion, not a lot of people are comfortable talking about religion and spirituality. It's one of those topics that has become privatized for various reasons. We live in a secular um, country in a secular institution, right? So I think it's, there are very good reasons for why keeping religion out of the public sphere is beneficial. But when it comes to student identity, we can't tell a student to leave their religion at the door if we're trying to serve them holistically. So I think it's being able to have um, no, not a fear of any identity and just being able to meet them where they are. And th so that's something that I'm also noticing that I bring to the table that some of my colleagues may not as well. Um, and then when it comes to your family, you know, when I tell my mom, my mom still asks me like, what do you do? Like explain it to me. And I think it's been many, many years that I've tried to talk to her of like, this is what I do. And this is what I, my daily work looks like. Um, even in grad school, it was always like, you know, many of our families, at least for me, Latino culture, we're a very spiritual community or very faith oriented. Um, but like studying religion is not something that's acceptable. It's actually more acceptable within the black community because there's a huge history of the black church being an empowering institution. For the Latino community, it has always been separate. And so I think um, when I told my mom, like, I want to study religion, it was like, que bueno, gracias a Dios, but like, what are you going to do with that? So I think it's, it's being able to... Um, feeling that pressure from the world already or society at large of like, what do you do with a religious studies degree or any grad school degree, but also feeling that pressure from home and folks not understanding your parents or your siblings not understanding why you chose this path. And even my brother would give me a hard time about, because he's a science um, scientist and he, he really thinks very practical. And so for him, it was, why are you going to this school? You could have gone to some other school um, to pursue whatever. And I think it took him a couple years to be comfortable with my trajectory. But once he saw the outcome that I now am in higher ed and I'm applying all my skills and I'm really enjoying it and they're making a difference. He told me once, like, I'm sorry for ever questioning you because he was very hard on me in grad school, like really questioning me, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And my, my, my answer was always, I'm going to go into the nonprofit industry and become an executive director. I can still do that with my degree. But um, later on, I switched because um, I was also trying to figure out if I wanted to be a lawyer, like many of us, either law or medicine. Um, and I did take classes at the law school. But as an undocumented person at that time, um, I didn't feel like if I lost a, a case and my client was deported, that would hurt me in a way that it wouldn't hurt an ally. And so I decided to steer away from immigration law, which was my goal for like five years and, and really to figure out a new alternative. And after taking Roberto Gonzalez's um, class on education policy and practices, I, I just felt like it was a fit. And that was the year that I was also a grad fellow for that student affairs job that I now became an assistant director. So I think there's there's a lot for us to uh, unpack 
as individuals. That's why my number one advice would be to connect with others who are going through the same journey as yourselves, because the the, um, the worst thing you can do as a first-gen professional or first-gen student is navigate all these institutions on your own. I know that we've been taught to be self-sufficient. We've gotten here because of our hard work ethic. The model of our parents is just work hard and someone will see that effort. But if you don't talk to people around you who are going through the same thing, you're going to feel so isolated, so alone. That's gonna take an impact on your mental health, on your confidence level. You're gonna feel huge sen like sense of imposter syndrome because again, you, might, you will feel like you know less than others around you, but that's not true. I think when you talk to people who are in a similar um, identity or stage in your life, you realize that you're actually where you need to be at the right time in the right place. It just takes time for us to feel like we can actually mature enough and be empowered enough um, to do all the things that we need to do with career, with negotiation of salaries. This year, um, I had to ask for a portfolio review in my current position because there was too much work on my plate that I couldn't handle it. And I wanted to, at that time, um, I wanted to provide support to the undocumented students at my institution, but I had so much work on my plate that I couldn't do that without something being taken out of my plate. So it took a lot for me to research how do you how do you negotiate a portfolio? How do you when do you ask for work to be taken off versus asking for a salary raise? All this during a time of COVID where institutions are being pinched with money. And so salary raise was not something that I could maybe go for, but a portfolio re review to sort of assess here are all my accomplishments in the last two years. And here's where I can, I would, I feel like I would be able to grow professionally if given the opportunity. But that's something that I had to talk to my career mentors with, talk to my partner with, really do a lot of, you know, pumping myself up to do this advocacy that no one else was going to do for me. The institution is a business. And so I think it's being, being mindful that it, although I have great um, supervisors, we still are part of a system that tends to be exploiting of our people of color, of our women, of our immigrants. And so I think it's being being able to be aware of the systemic injustice that's around us and advocating for ourselves because at the end of the day, who's gonna advocate for the students if you're not advocating for yourself first? And so that's what I did. And I'm very grateful that I have very supportive um, people around me to be able to accomplish that. Um, but it definitely was something that I learned and now can um, teach others how to do. Yeah, and thank you for, for sharing this, like so much wisdom and all of this. And ultimately I think, because we live in such a society where it's a lot of people pleasing, I think that's the hardest hurdle I've seen a lot of undergrads do is making sure that they're doing things for themselves. You know, often with students, it's a lot of conversations about, well, how am I supposed to explain it to my parents? Or a lot of first year saying, well, my parents think that this is more, you know, marketable for the job and all that stuff. And having to demystify all of those things where a lot of the times it's, you know, making sure that the student understands, you know, the difference between a passion and a hobby, you know, and making sure that they, uh, you know, try to feel some sort of autonomy and control over their lives, where I have to let them know, I'm like, well, that's great that your parents want you to do this. I think all parents want the best, you know, for you, um, if they are very invested into seeing what you end up doing in your college career and making sure that your investment meant something. 
But ultimately, they're not going to your classes. They're not doing job applications for you. I have seen some parents be very, very involved, you know, and it's making sure that if you're feeling that imposter syndrome is because you're doing something that doesn't feel right for you. It doesn't fit your style. So to minimize that, I tell students, you know, you really have to, you know, do some reflection, think about what you want to do, expose yourself to certain things, because if there's some doubt or something, let's figure out what the barrier is and there, and let's see if what happens, because, you know, this is, it's not sustainable for us to always be, you know, not going for the things that we want because of fear, because ultimately, you know, right when all the barriers are taken out, if you're used to, you know, being conditioned to always think, pues no se puede, we can't do this, or no, that's like too much or whatever. It's like, once you have it right there in front of you, I'm like, if I were to give it to you right now, how are you gonna react? And if your immediate thing is, I'm gonna pull back and not do it, I'm like, well, there's more to that than, than you're saying. Cause you know, the barrier is, it does exist, but then it's the excuses we end up, you know, putting in ourselves and self-sabotaging why we can't end up having it. Because I'm like, all of this stuff, you know, college, grad school, career planning, um, it's gonna take out all your insecurities and put it right in front of you. So, you know, a lot of, you know, self-esteem work, confidence and all this stuff. Yeah, um, Yana, you you mentioned in your, or we mentioned in your bio that you have a lot of uh, training, right? Um, you've been part of a lot of organizations and I think that's what makes you such a great leader. Um, every time, you know, you, you're more aware of the, of your strengths and, and areas for growth and development. Um, so how, um, so I'd like to ask you, given the Latina mentorship work that you do, what words of advice would you like to give to particularly Latinas, women and femmes of color who are on their own empowerment and healing journey? Absolutely. I, I love that question. I, I, and I think um, knowing your strengths is something that I try to teach my mentees all the time. And I think for me, exactly what you're saying, Ariana, my empowerment journey began um, through the Chicano Latino Youth Leadership Project in California. I am an alum. And when I went as a junior in high school to this conference in Sacramento, um, my first time outside of living, leaving Los Angeles, I, for the first time, met an undocumented student who was attending college. I didn't know they existed, right? Like it was one of those things where it was, you don't know what you can achieve until you see that, which is why representation matters so much. Seeing people who have a similar background, who have a similar cultural value as you in positions of power gives you a sense of, oh, if they did that, because we have that shared background, then I can do it. And so my, I give a lot of, give credit to all of the leadership institutes that I've been a part of, all of the fellowships that have invested in me um, because all the skills that I bring to the table and the sense, right, I can, the Green Lining Institute in, um, in the Bay Area taught me that as people of color, if we're not in policy um, advocacy meetings or where the, power, where the power shifts, then we are not making the impact that our community deserves. And so as a Latina, I always think of, if I am in this room, I am representing the many, many hundreds who weren't able to make it to this room. And so there is a huge sense of responsibility that I bring to all the spaces. And if I'm in a room of a thousand people versus a room of a hundred people versus a room of 10 people, no matter the size, 
I will speak up if I need to speak up. And so I think that's something that has been ingrained in my professional development or leadership development journey from all these fellows, leadership institutes that I've been so blessed to be a part of. Because one thing I learned is that I'm really good at applying, applying into things. I think we learn how to apply to college, how to apply to grad school, how to apply to jobs. It was, it's always been like, let me just apply. And I, um, that is something that I've been really, really gifted in. And so knowing your strengths is something that came out of the, the research of Professor Tara Yoso, who has the com community cultural wealth model. And she really um, inspired me in grad school when I learned about her theoretical framing that she argues that students of color um, definitely bring forms of capital into higher education, but that the institution is not designed to um, evaluate, to assess, and to recognize these forms of values because they're more used to having a upper middle class or middle class white student. And so without that lens of understanding the assets that students of color and that I would argue first gen students or immigrant students bring into higher education, then we have an entirely missed opportunity as student affairs professionals to not recognize um, the linguistic capital that our students bring as folks who can speak multiple languages, but also as folks who can navigate and code switch from um, different communities that they're a part of. We have not been trained to recognize navigational capital, especially for our first-gen students who are the first to graduate high school, first to attend college. The amount of navigational capital that it took for them to be in that room is incredible. Um, and not only do our institutions not understand the forms of capital of our students, our students themselves don't understand how much power and how much strength and how much asset they bring into every single space because we're stuck in the deficit-based thinking of we are at risk, we are disadvantaged, we are behind the curve, we are always playing catch-up, we know less, we are in sponsorship, right? We hear all these negative definitions of being placed on our community and research being done that is deficit-based as opposed to researching the assets. And so what Professor Yoso does is she really um, push back on that argument that our students of color do not bring any forms of capital. And she identifies six forms of capital. And I encourage everyone to read her article on community cultural wealth model because it transformed the way that I viewed myself, the way that I view my students and the way that I view my industry and my practice. Um, and when I mentor Latinas, I actually run a, a Latina mentorship circle um, at my institution outside of my work, sort of as a volunteer. Um, and I really value peer mentorship and peer coaching. And so um, I have a, usually my, my setup is there's me, I'm sort of their, their mentor for all of them, but I have a Latina who's a senior, Latina who's a junior, and a Latina who's a sophomore. Most recently, I now have a Latina who's a first year, but it usually takes me time to get to know first year before I invite them into my mentorship circle. And how I invite them is I just meet with them, um, have coffee, right? And as a mentor, always pay and always tell our first year students it's on me so that they're not stressed about going to coffee with me. Um, and then in getting to know their life story and their journey to Harvard, because that's where I'm at now. But I hope to be able to bring this Latina mentorship circle with me wherever I go. Um, and then just get to know them, share my story, my trajectory, and then ask them, hey, do you have a mentor? Do you need a mentor? Here's what a mentor looks like. And I would love to sort of bring you under my wing and kind of like be there for you throughout the time that you're here. Um, and um, what I love about this, we actually just had our meeting 
is that the, the, the junior is able to give advice to the sophomore. And then the, the senior is able to give advice to the junior. And then I can give advice to the senior who's like, how do I graduate? How do I find a job? And so there's really this circle of mentorship that's going on in this beautiful sacred space. Um, and by the end of the meeting, what I do is I have my mentees share how they're doing, whether it's personal, academic, um, professional, whatever they want to check in, but to focus on a moment, like a case study, like what, are, what is coming up for you at this moment that you want to share with us to get advice from us. And so it's a very particular type of mentorship. But by the end, I've had my mentees wrestle through two jobs that they're deciding between or the, the challenges of going back home for the first time after being a first year or whatever dynamics, deciding who they're going to live with for the next three years at their institution. And so there's some critical moments that are really beautiful that come up. Um, and again, I remind my students of all of their assets. I, I bring sort of that cultural competence, being able to speak as a Latina with my Latina students and really naming for them, like that's a cultural expectation that's been put on us for whatever reason, like going into sort of our, our background and our culture. Many of my mentees are actually undocumented or child of undocumented immigrants. So I always bring that into the conversation because immigration legal status is a master status that affects all of the student. And so if you're a child of immigrant, of undocumented immigrants or, or one yourself, that might impact your healthcare, your legal care, your mental health, your uh, access to housing and, and food, whatever it is, it, it affects everything. And so having that experience, I think makes me um, able to invite my, my students to bring all of who they are into that conversation um, and tell them like even recently, my, you know, as I'm telling my mentees of my future goals and they see me leading workshops, I've led a workshop for the Latino Empowerment Conference at Harvard on what does it mean to be Latina, where I facilitate a, um, a group of 200 Latinas who are in high school and college. And I do what, um, what we would call the stand up, step, stand down activity, but I created a customized 30 questions that are applicable to the Latina identity or experience. Um, everything from, um, you know, stand up if you identify as Afro-Latina to stand up if you have ever had an issue with your hair, whether it's stand up if you've ever witnessed domestic violence, you know, the questions go deeper and deeper. And of course, it's a challenge by choice. So you don't need to stand up if you're not comfortable. But what I've encountered and, and the students that I facilitated the workshop was like, They've said they've been a part of these activities in uh, high school and in college, but it's always superficial level. It's never going deep. And it's, it's always a diverse group of people. They've never done this activity with just Latinas where we're talking about stand up if you've ever had um, an issue with um, eating disorders. That's something we never talk about. Right. And so, right. There's there's those questions that bring up so much that by the end of the session, um, I only have to ask one question and we talk about for 45 minutes. So I ask what statements stood out to you and why? And, and students have stood up and have shared their heart out. They have cried in front of 200 other Latinas. We've held space, we've applauded, we stood up for each other. We snapped as people were sharing that by the end of the session, um, folks are coming up to me saying, I wanna bring this back into my high school. I want, I want you to come and speak to my, my Latina students because you were able to create this space of healing. And it was truly a healing moment. And for me as a facilitator of that moment, the honor and the, the privilege to be able to share vulnerably 
and to say, right, like when I had one of my Lat the participants say, um, I have always struggled with Spanish, you know, and I never felt included because I don't speak the language. And, and, and I had another Latina stood up and say, you know, as a light-skinned Latina, I've, I've been become aware more of my privilege and I am a light-skinned Latina, you can't see me, but I am a white passing Latina. And so I was able to speak into that person and say like, as white passing Latinas, we have to acknowledge that when it comes to um, visual discrimination, whether we're stopped by a cop or even as for me as an undocumented immigrant, being very aware that if ICE detained me and my partner or me and someone else, I had that privilege to pass where other undocu folks don't have that. And so I think it's in that moment be as a facilitator is validating their experience, but also opening it up a little bit more by helping them see someone who might not resonate with their experience, but has a completely different um, perspective. And so that's, that's what I love to do. That's part of the healing journey is being radically vulnerable and letting our, our community know that we, um, there is, there is hope and we are not just a bag of problems. I tell my mentees, we are more than our trauma and we are, we can experience joy and hope and we can experience full healing. I encourage all my mentees to access mental health services at college because I only access my counseling services for three months as an undergrad and for three months as a grad student. So a total of six months throughout my higher education experience. And now as a working professional, I just started therapy all over again um, at November 3rd, election day. Had my first session with my Latina therapist that I hand selected because at some point you realize that you need a Latina therapist if you're sort of struggling with things um, or someone who gets you in the full sense of the word, whatever identity resonates with you. And so I encourage them to do it now so that when they're in their late 20s and 30s like me, that they're not having to unpack and unlearn toxic behavior or things that should have been already um, done away with so that you can be fully thriving and not only surviving. And so that is my hope for all students. Um, go to therapy, um, even if your family doesn't agree. <laughs> um, I, I think one way to explain it to our families is that you're just seeking consejos. You're just trying to seek people who can give you additional advice. And that's a part of what a therapist does. They give you advice. They help you become aware of things that are in your blind spots. Um, and, and ultimately, like, it's just talking. I think in our community, the way we heal is in community. And so being able to access therapy or a healing circle, if your uh, counseling service has a, a therapy group or a support group, that's part of, of, of communal healing that we need to do as a group as well. So, so many like great advices that I'm like, I wish we could just extend it more and talk more in depth just so, because there's so much to unpack in like everything you just said, because, you know, it's a full on you know, holistic healing of like multiple things, you know, addressing our own identities, addressing our own toxic behavior, our family's toxic behavior, and also the toxic environments that we navigate as well, professionally and academically. Um, there's more to say, but, you know, we've been also conditioned to also just be of service. So we want to ask the last question is, so what about your professional and uh, personal hopes and dreams? Uh, can you tell us about, you know, what are your current career aspirations and what your next uh, goal would be? And, you know, how are you seeking the next level of, you know, femtorship and, you know, support that you need at this stage of your of your career? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, my personal and professional goals are really intersected because I can't think of myself without thinking of my family and my community. I am not an individualistic person. So yes, I do have my own personal journey and my own career, but I'm constantly, like you said, Patricia, we're constantly serving, we're constantly giving. Um, I think we've been conditioned as women, as, as Latinas to be the providers of our, our caretakers of our family in many ways. Um, and that's something that I'm still trying to figure out as well. So my personal goals are, um, and professional goals are eventually to move back to the West Coast. I've been in the East Coast for six, seven years, um, something like that. And I think I have never found my footing here. It's always been this sense of I'm a California girl. I'm a diehard LA fan. And so I, um, I have found great community and great people. I've kickstarted my career. But I think at some point, it's, there's always been where my heart is in LA or my heart is in California. So professionally, my next goal would be to look into positions that are doing affinity-based student support, whether that's first-gen uh, student uh, success centers or undocumented student resource centers or even Latinx uh, Chicano Latino centers. I, I feel like all three identities I resonate with strongly, all of them intersect for me. And I feel like I can be um, helping to take a center to the next level or help it to be more inclusive in many ways, um, because there's always people that are left in the margins in, in any of those um, support centers. The other thing is, um, personally, is becoming a dog mom. I have been craving a puppy or a dog, maybe not a puppy, because I do want to adopt. That's another thing is um, the difference between <laughs> a newborn puppy and adoption. I think um, I, my heart is inclined to save a little dog before they're taken. And so I want to become a dog mom and I've been wanting that for so many years. I live in a place where that's not possible now, but I'm excited to um, move out and feel like and, and find a place that is dog friendly um, because I do think a lot of healing can come from our animals and our pets and, and they're beautiful creatures. And many, many of us have had um, some of our most precious moments with them. And so finding that solace in, in, um, in a pet can be beautiful. So hopefully we'll be a dog mom and we'll find a job in affinity-based centers in the West Coast um, in the years to come. The other thing is I wanna pursue doctoral studies. And so I am interested in going back for a final grad degree. <laughs> I have two degrees. I think there's this culture of accumulating so many degrees, but um, which I'm definitely a part of, but I want to pursue a doctoral degree in PhD in education to hopefully be a Dean of Students, a Dean of Diversity, Chief Diversity Officer, or a VP of Student Affairs, or even a college president or university leader. And so I think it's leaving the options where they need to, you know, the, the, where the world would take me, but, but feeling really called to research specifically on docu-student research, advancing the work that I've been able to benefit from previous um, scholarship and looking particularly at higher education and um, docu-student success, the intersections between Latinx, first-gen and non-docu identities, and, and really contributing to the, the field of higher education student services. 
creating guides and, and um, scholarship that will directly impact the practice of higher ed administrators. I mean, the amount of people that get masters of education but don't know how to serve undocumented students is way too high in this country. Um, it's not until you, you encounter the 2016 election or 2020 election that higher ed institutions are seeing the value of someone who understands the immigrant student population. And that goes for all marginalized populations. It's really like national, um, critical national moments where we turn our attention to, oh, we need to have a full-time person dedicated to this population of students because this student body is, is really suffering at this time. And so figuring out how to um, give back to the field of higher ed through future scholarship and open myself up to in case I ever want to teach as well. There's so much that you can do with that degree. Um, but I know that doctoral studies is not for anyone. I actually, not for everyone. I actually never thought that I would pursue a PhD when I was an undergrad. I was like, I'm just going to get my master's or maybe a JD, go to law school, but that's it. I didn't know that I was going to be so interested in um, doctoral studies until I've been in the field of, of student affairs and realized, oh, there's so much work to be done that I feel like I can contribute down the line. Um, and then another personal goal um, could be going back, going back to my family. Um, I am a huge believer in um, uh, familia. I come from a single mother. And so when I think about my career, I always think about how do I invest in myself so that I can give back to my mom. And so whether that's becoming a homeowner, becoming financially literate, learning all these investing and assets and all these things that give us anxiety so that I can make sure that my mom has a, um, a good retirement experience or even she may not have a retirement fund, but I, like, you know, we always say I am my parents' retirement um, account or future. And I think that's very true for me. And so it's, it's this desire of becoming financially stable so that I can uh, make sure that she lacks nothing in her last years. And so every single career um, goal or career move will have her in mind as, as many of us will always have our family in mind. So being in California is part of being closer to her in case she ever needs anything, I'm available for her. And having a house with multiple bedrooms, it's having a, a bedroom just for her whenever she visits or whenever she moves in, whenever she's ready. And it's always this dream of um, we take care of our own and no one's going to take care of her. And so being there for her when she needs me at that time, but really it's putting in the hours and the work now so that in the future, um, I have all the income in the world to make sure that I can sustain my mom when she's old enough. Yeah, that's so, so inspirational. And I think it's, it's so important for us to, you know, if anything from this pandemic has taught us is like so much reflection of like how we're living, you know, our lives, you know, and, and the fact that, you know, the surviving is not sustainable for a long time, serving others before yourself is also not sustainable. And, you know, to really evaluate that, like all this alone time, or all the things that give us anxiety, maybe some things that we need to do, like, that we need to, you know, face and confront eventually, um, just because, you know, just seeing how my parents have, you know, lived their life. And now that I'm an adult, you kind of just reflect on, you know, what is it the existence or the life that you want to bring forward, regardless of where, where whatever space you occupy. And the fact that uh, for a lot of us, we get so feared based on like these big responsibilities of, you know, am I able to be, you know, well or do well? Because one thing is, you know, 
bringing a lot of criticism to all these people that were like, I, they, they're not doing well. And another thing is actually doing it yourself. Like, so whenever you put it yourself, I think it's you, there's so much level of preparation that you need and, and that it includes spiritually and, you know, all these things that we need to, you know, face in order for us to be really good, um, leaders serving leaders within our communities and to bring it back to you know what our value system is and and what kind of world we want to create and the fact that all this preparation that you're doing you know it's just i resonate so much with what you're saying because i'm like this is the thing in the world that we want to create even if we haven't seen it ourselves you know representation can only do so much because you know the value system and the social justice perspective and all these things that you're talking about isn't always represented and all in one person, you know, and and I think that's important for us that if you don't see it, become it, do it, and inspire others to do the same because there's so much that you're saying in terms of spirituality and religion that a lot of you know leaders don't bring it in, and that's the thing that a lot of people can resonate for and you know gravitate towards you as someone who they can confide in a lot of things that maybe the staleness of academic affairs and student affairs just does not do us any service. Um, and actually, I've been into several workshops where I just like, you're supposed to be the ones giving us information as staff, you know, and I'm like, this makes no sense. I've learned way more through Instagram, through social media, through people like us that, you know, are envisioning this kind of world that if only we could just connect together, because in every stage, now that I'm a staff, I can resonate and see that, oh, now I know why my professors or my staff were always available for me, because there's a lot of things that we have to also, you know, balance out that it can now make me feel that um, students are always telling me, like, I don't want to be a burden to you. And that's that's not the kind of world we want to create where it's like we can all help each other we can all co-mentor each other with whatever stage and age you're, you're coming in but you know it's a it's a balance that we need to we need to hope you know hopefully get to in in any space that we're in and you know thank you so much for sharing um so much consejo so much wisdom in like in your words and and i hope that you know the journey that you're in brings a lot of abundance just because you 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 give a lot to any space that you're in thank you so much diana many many thanks <laughs> um yeah and i was just gonna say that if i were interviewing right now i would offer you this job wherever you're like you gave really really awesome responses like very concrete with you know very specific examples and it shows that your passion is you know you embody it and so i'm really happy that you were able to join us today to share all this great advice and and it takes people like you to you know move the needle forward right for others so i'm really grateful for your your story for sharing your wisdom and um, i look forward to continuing to work with you I really want to thank you both for having me, um, for creating this space of reflection. And I, I love, I love reflecting. I love learning. I love being able to. I'm a history person to look back on how far we've come and to be grateful for this journey. I, I couldn't have done it without my mentors, and that's why I want to give back to future generations. And both of you are also doing the same thing, right? Wherever we go, we we make it a little bit better than it was when we first got there. And that's always the goal. It takes time and it's frustrating because systemic change um, is really difficult. But I think we have to do it because we are the generation, especially so many first-gen students, the majority are Latinx. And we're the generation that's going to be the most educated uh, generation among our Latino community. 
and being able to give back and um, pave the way, make it easier for younger students so that they don't have to go through kind of like what our parents did. For me, my, my mom gave me a better childhood than the one she had. And so that's something that I always carry with me is help make these institutions more accessible, more equitable, more inclusive, so that students don't have to feel the sense of isolation and aloneness and fear that I felt in my first year student, as a first year student. And so I think it's um, really grateful for you both for holding the space. I can't wait to see you all in person and have a cafecito and enjoy and reflect the, the work that we all do um, and to take care of each other. We need each other. Having mujeres Latinas in the field for me is so life-giving. I get so sad when I hear about people of color and women of color leaving the industry, leaving student affairs, leaving higher education because it's so exhausting, because it's so inequitable. And I just get courage from knowing that there are others like me trying to make a difference in their institution. So thank you. For our BIPOC business shout out for this episode, uh, it's the ethical fashion brand All for Ramon. Um, this is from their website. Um, founded in Los Angeles by two Latina sisters on a mission to create modern effortless essentials to wear on repeat, witnessing firsthand the amount of waste fashion creates, we felt compelled to make a change. AFR is absolutely committed to elevating the standard one unique garment at a time. We do this through our eco-minded craftsmanship, ethical manufacturing, conservation of natural resources, and employee wellness. Designed for those of us who are bold, conscientious, unapologetic, and ready to live with purpose. We'll see a future where high-end fashion doesn't come at a cost of our mother earth. So you can actually visit their website to find different garments and uh, fashion um, pieces, uh, both from tops to unisex uh, t-shirts, crewnecks, face masks, and other accessories on their shop. Uh, all the link and information for their business will be in our episode caption. So definitely check them out on social media and their at is all for Ramon, A-L-L-F-O-R-R-A-M-O-N. For all of our listeners, you can email us at chicanacodeswitchers at gmail.com and send us your POC business conference and event shoutouts and listener letters. You could also record a listener message on Anchor app, and that way we can include your recorded message in our future episodes. Follow us on Instagram at Chicana Code Switchers and on Twitter at X Code Switchers. If you would like to support this podcast, you can Venmo or Cash app us at Chicana Code Switchers and or become a Patreon contributor. Thank you, and don't forget, switch the code, don't let the code switch you.